0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Barry Usher, and I have the pleasure of preaching this morning, continuing on in our sermon series from the book of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 11. And I've entitled my sermon, From Disgrace to Renewal. Great writers and filmmakers know the power of an underdog story. And the Rocky movie franchise is perhaps uh, the prime example And in the movie, at least the first movie of 17, I think, Rocky Balboa is a guy who is down on his luck, and he's made some poor decisions, but he's uh, continuing to persevere in his dream to become a prize fighter. And he's a flawed character, and he's uh, meant to be portrayed as somebody that we can identify as the audience, but more importantly, he's someone that we are to root for uh, as he faces uh, his own challenges. And this is what makes uh, the underdog-type story so compelling. There's a fallible hero facing seemingly insurmountable odds on the path to victory. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, there's a similar underdog theme. In our study so far, uh, we've been introduced to Saul as a flawed character. And now having been anointed as Israel's first king he faces a series of obstacles to his leadership. And the first being, uh, in fact, the Israelites' rejection of God. And we know that their desire for a king, like all of the pagan nations around them, was, in fact, a rejection of God, a rebellion against God, and a turning away from his sovereign rulership. But we also know that God provided Saul to be their king, And his kingship came with conditions that Samuel gave to the people and outlined for them at the end of chapter 10. And as we heard last week, these conditions and terms likely came from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, where God gave his rules for his people. But ultimately, this meant that the king of Israel would still be subordinate to God's ultimate sovereign reign. And this wasn't the kind of king that the people wanted. The the people wanted a king like all of the other nations. And this, in fact, exposed the crack in the spiritual unity of the people and exposed their uh, sinful spiritual hearts. A second obstacle was an internal opposition to Saul. At the end of chapter 10, uh, some people uh, rose up and Uh, defied Saul's leadership, questioning, can this man really save us? And this opposition may have stemmed from the fact uh, of Saul's Benjaminite origin and the link that the Benjaminites had to a brief civil war that's uh, recorded for us in Judges 19 and 20. And the start of this civil war involved the rape and murder of a concubine at the hands of uh, some men from uh, Gibeah, The tribe of Benjamin. And as a result, the concubine's husband vowed to avenge her death, and as a warning, cut her body into 12 pieces and sent those pieces throughout the the land of Israel. And this was to incite the other tribes to rise up and take action against the people of Gibeah. And the resulting war led to the near destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And I think the memory of this would have been fresh in the minds of the people, particularly as God appointed Saul, a Benjaminite, to be their king. And this exposed uh, a, a fragile national unity. Another obstacle was the threat of the surrounding nations who wanted to make war with Israel. And to the west, uh, uh, sorry, the, sorry uh, Philistines to the west, and now the Ammonites under the leadership of Nahash to the east were both uh, formidable foes and uh, fierce, well-armed uh, contenders. And these obstacles show how Saul had his work cut out for him as the newly appointed king. But however... Despite these daunting circumstances, uh, the underscore of our passage today, as it has been throughout the book, is God's continued sovereign intervention and direction in the lives of his people. And while Saul is a prominent figure in the story, God remains the main actor. And as the main actor, God's main theme is his salvation. And that's the main idea of this passage. That God is the one who appoints his servant Saul to effect his salvation on behalf of his people. And so as we work through the text this morning, uh, as a means of organizing uh, my message, we're going to stop at each geographic location mentioned to see that just as God revealed himself as Israel's true savior and king and empowering Saul for victory... He alone is our salvation, and he has provided his son Jesus as our final and perfect king and only means of salvation. Let's begin uh, looking at the first three verses where there is a crisis of disgrace in Jabesh Gilead. The people there have been uh, thrust into a situation where Nahash, the Ammonite king, has surrounded this Israelite town, and he's seeking to capture it. And faced with this dire threat, surprisingly, the townspeople uh, express their willingness to submit to Nahash's rule, and they propose a treaty with him. Now, this is astonishing, because in essence, they're inviting Nahash to become their king. These Israelites have lost their will to obey God, and they have no confidence in Saul as God's appointed leader. And this willingness to walk away from God's plan would come at a heavy cost as Nahash seeks more than mere submission. We read that his aim is to humiliate the city and by extension, humiliate the entire nation of Israel. And to do so, he'll weaken the fighting men of of Jabesh Gilead by gouging out their right eyes and branding them as defeated prisoners of war. And this act would allow him easily to swoop in and and capture the the city and its wealth and enslave its people. And in response to this, the people of Jabesh-Gilead ask for a seven-day grace period to go and find someone else who might come to their rescue. And for some reason, Nahash agrees to this, maybe because he's overconfident in Israel's disunity, and figures they aren't going to be able to muster anybody to come to their defense. This first scene marks a profound low point in Israel's history. God's chosen people who once experienced the removal of disgrace from them as God brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea to the land of Canaan are now considering taking on the disgrace of Nahash and the shame of his humiliating defeat. And the people's response in this moment demonstrates, I think, the hardness of their heart toward God. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't cry out to God. They didn't send for the Ark of the Covenant, as perhaps they once did. And they didn't even seek out Saul, who was God's recently appointed king. Instead, they wept. And they sent messengers in a faint hope of finding somebody to come to their rescue. And I think this provokes several questions for us to begin to consider. Namely, where is their resolve to walk obediently and faithfully in keeping God's commands? What must the state of their faith have been in order for them to so easily consider surrender to the enemy? I think what else can this be but the sad effects of sin in the lives of people who have rejected God and turned their backs on him? for us, this first scene highlights the reality of sin in our lives. And it should prompt us to ask similar questions about our own resolve to defend against its pervasive threat. I might ask myself, where's my resolve to walk obediently and faithful in keeping with God's commands? And am I easily enticed to surrender to sin? Or am I actively fleeing it? Am I uh, resisting it? Am I battling against it? Am I obeying uh, scripture as Paul told the Colossian church to put to death whatever is earthly in you? This pervasive presence of sin requires us as believers to take a posture of readiness to battle it. And it reminds me of some uh, nature programs that I enjoy watching that feature exotic and dangerous uh, animals and reptiles. And particularly uh, in these shows, I love the professionals who assume huge personal risk to enter into the domain of, of these animals, be it a poisonous snake or a large crocodile. And when they do, they aren't casual or flippant, but they take a posture of readiness And action, knowing that at any moment this creature could rear up and lash out and strike and cause harm and death. And this is a picture of sin that the Bible gives to us. God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4 that sin is like a wild animal crouching at the door, it's like a predator lurking for its prey, it's waiting to devour its next victim. It's not a tame pet that can be trusted and trained, but it's a predatory master who's waiting to pounce and dominate. And in our lives, sin crouches at the door in those times where we seek instant gratification for our needs and our desires in an unrighteous way. And it crouches at the door in the the midst of our uh, relative ease and comfort in life, in which we allow ourselves to become complacent to sin's corrosive and eroding effects on our conscience. And it lurks in those moments when we're tempted to distrust God's providence and pridefully turn our back on him at the expense of exercising humble faith and obedience to his will. And just as Nahash sought to mark the Israelites with disgrace sin poses the same threat for believers. For believers, the approach the sorry, the reproach of sin has been rolled away by Christ, and we know that we who were once enslaved by sin have been set free, becoming slaves to righteousness, as Paul told the Roman church. But still sin crouches seeking to dominate once again. And we are called to be vigilant in the battle against it, recognizing the danger it poses to our souls, and instead pursue the righteousness that reflects the life of Christ in us. And so the primary point of application here is to recognize that regardless of external appearances, God's people are always on a war footing. We're constantly fighting an unseen battle against sin. And this war is the reality of the Christian life, and its terms are laid out for us in Scripture. The Bible tells us that we are engaged in a spiritual battle with sin and Satan. We're told that we don't fight with the weapons of the world, but by relying on God's strength, putting on the armor of God, and actively resisting the devil, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. We're told that we're not to be fearful, but there is to be no truce with sin. And we're to guard ourselves against it. And when we recognize it in our lives, we confess it, meaning we agree with God about what he says about our sin. And we mourn over it with godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. But then we also rejoice that God has provided a remedy for our sin, the atonement and freedom found in relationship with Christ. And we do this all while making use of the ordinary means of grace God has given for our sanctification, our growth in righteousness, namely God's word, prayer, and fellowship with other believers. And in fact, I think a sign that we have awakened to the reality of spiritual warfare in our lives will be seen in our renewed commitment to the power of God through his word. Since we know that we are not born again of a perishable seed, but by the living and abiding word of God, as Peter wrote to his church. And brothers and sisters, let's recognize the reality of our spiritual battle and lay hold uh, both of God's promises for victory and sanctification, but at the same time, arm ourselves with his ordinary means of grace in order to battle against it and do so consistently. Moving on in the story of 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4 shifts to having us look at the king from Gibeah. And the scene begins with messengers arriving in Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and delivering the distressing news to the people of Nahash's attack. And the Bible says the people wept loudly. But when Saul, who had apparently returned to being a farmer, uh, heard the commotion and heard the news, he came up from out out of the fields and the Bible says, the spirit of God rushed upon him, filling him with righteous indignation. It's the work of the spirit of God that moved Saul to action, much like the earlier judges of Israel who were empowered by God's spirit to deliver Israel from their oppressors. And here in 1 Samuel 11, there's a light of hope, a light of hope for Israel that even though they had rejected and rebelled against God, God had not abandoned his children. And instead, he empowered Saul as his servant to enact his salvation on their behalf. And this is evidence that the king in Israel would not be a a mere political figure, but a divinely appointed Servant directed by the sovereignty of God and empowered by his his very presence. And so taking a yoke of oxen, Saul cuts them into 12 pieces and sends the pieces throughout Israel. And this is a direct callback to the action of the man in Judges 19 and 20, who sent the body of his concubine throughout the land. And just as that act was a call to action against the moral decay in Israel in the days where there was no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Saul's action was also a call to arms. But now it marked a new beginning. Now there was a king in Israel who would unite the people in response to Nahash's threat. And he was empowered by the Spirit of God to do so. And likewise, the people's response to Saul Was brought about by the hand of God upon them and the Spirit of God at work within them, and they respond in unity, and the fear of the Lord fell on them, and they obeyed the call to join Saul and Samuel in battle. And the point of the scene is that despite the people's rebellion, The response of Saul and the people are a result of God's gracious intervention by his spirit, moving both the king and the people towards God's intended purpose. And as believers, we would do well to remember how God continues to accomplish his redemptive work among his people. It's brought about by the Father's sovereign will, through faith in Christ the Son, And made effective by the Spirit's work within us. It's God's gift of his Holy Spirit to us that makes the word of God mighty for salvation. Empowers us to obey him. And grow in holiness. To deepen our affections for him. To enable us to walk faithfully. And unite us in worship. So that Jesus may be glorified in his church. And we would do well to also remember that the good work we do that stems from our faith is not meritorious before God. It doesn't improve our status or earn us a greater measure of favor from him. It's true from uh, the most mature saint to the one who's only recently born again. We're all just paupers before the king in constant need of his mercy and his grace. And any good work that we do is simply an overflow and evidence of the Holy Spirit's work within us, empowering us and sustaining our faith, changing and growing us in Christ's likeness and fueling our desire to obey him more. And we're mistaken if we feel that we need to in some way prop ourselves up before God in an effort to prove our worthiness for his salvation. No, no. As those who were once dead in our sin and now have been made alive through Christ Jesus, we continue to collapse our full weight on Jesus alone as we live out our salvation and the blessing that comes from him. And as a continued measure of his grace, God fills us afresh with his spirit to bring us to maturity. This reality of joy and freedom that comes in living in the Spirit's power is what Paul desired his churches to know, particularly the Galatian church that had veered from their initial dependence on Christ alone for their salvation and had gone back to depending on their own efforts and obedience to the law to be found right before God. And Paul, uh, you know, you can just sense his, his character coming through in his letter to the Galatians interrogates them, saying, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And his question is meant to highlight the continuity that exists in the believer's initial experience of receiving the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation and the ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit power throughout daily life. And Paul emphasized that the Christian life begins with the power of spirit and can only persist in the same manner. And it's the same for us. The only way that we can persevere in our Christian faith, the only way we can engage in the battle against sin is because the Holy Spirit in us makes us able. And this presents another point of application for us. The Christian life is marked by an attitude attitude of battle readiness against sin, but it's also marked with a hungry heart driven to earnest prayer for God to fill us afresh with his spirit. We need to be driven to pray for God's fir- spirit to fill us afresh each day, helping us to grow in his likeness, enabling us to experience a growing affection for his glory. And brothers and sisters, This prayer stems from hearts that are exhausted from trying and failing to achieve God's favor by its own merits and strength. This prayer is a cry to God for more of his power, more of his life within us. It's a prayer of desperation, claiming no other allegiance, no other need, but Jesus alone. And its motivation is a pure desire to glorify Christ and have Christ glorified in us. And here's our hope, that God delights to answer this prayer for his children. We know this from Luke chapter 11, that God delights to give his Holy Spirit to his children. Because God is glorified when, by the work of his Holy Spirit in us, Christ is magnified and lifted up. So brothers and sisters, let's be battle-ready against sin But let's also pray earnestly for God to fill us afresh each day. And it helps me to take into my prayer closet the words uh, of a famous hymn. To help me in my prayer, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from sin through all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness mighty as thou art. And make me love you as I ought to love. The next section in the narrative of uh, 1 Samuel 11 takes us from Jabesh-Gilead and the king from Gibeah, and now moves on to describe the salvation that came from uh, Bezek in verses 8 to 11. And although Saul led the army, the victory was the result of the wisdom and strength given by the Spirit of God. And it was also God's Spirit that caused all of the Israelites to respond to Saul's call to arms, and 330,000 warriors assembled at Bezek, And subsequently, messengers were sent back to Jabesh Gilead, bearing the good news that salvation is going to come, and it's going to come before midday tomorrow through a swift and unexpected attack. And executing the plan, the people of Jabesh had to use some cunning, and they tell the Ammonites that tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, the phrase, we will give ourselves up to you, uh, has a bit of ambiguity, because it could literally be translated as, we will come out to you. And this slight ambiguity perhaps escaped Nahash and he lowered his guard and uh, that left the, the, guard, the army um, uh, penetrable and, and defeatable. And so the next day Saul organized the people and launched the surprise attack and they caught the Ammonites off guard. And the battle resulted in the defeat of the enemy. And the victory was decisive. It was comprehensive. And God had raised Saul to be recognized as a strategic and empowered leader. And this is a good opportunity for us to reflect on how Saul's character points forward to Jesus. And how Saul's actions, although empowered by the Spirit of God, really pale in comparison To the kingly ministry of Jesus, who is God's perfect and final king for his people. And while Saul received God's anointing for a limited and temporary kingship, Jesus came as God's anointed one, the Messiah, to save God's people from their ultimate enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus stands alone as God's perfect king, fulfilling every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And he showcased his divine nature and kingly authority through his ministry on earth, his miracles, his teaching, the dominion over both the spiritual and the physical realm, and ultimately his resurrection from the dead. He triumphed and showed his authority over all of creation. And like the people of Jabesh Gilead, we rejoice because God's King Jesus has come to bring us salvation. And in the upcoming season, and I know it's uh, already started, I heard it in a Tim Hortons this week, every public space will resound gloriously with this message that we are to rejoice for the Lord has come and the earth is to receive her King. And church, let me encourage you, when you hear this message, be it in a mall or a shop or in the, uh, in the car on the radio, pause for a moment and rejoice because we have a king who brings salvation. Christmas is merry because of this. We have a king whose royal majesty is known now in the salvation that he gives us through the empowerment of his spirit within us And also awaits the time of God's ultimate fulfillment when he will return. And Joss saw this in his Revelation uh, chapter 19. Listen to what it says With heaven standing open, coming on a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We have a king. Our challenge amidst the busyness of life, and particularly the busyness of this upcoming season, where we'll be consumed uh, with all sorts of concerns, is to remember Jesus Christ, our King, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who reigns in the hearts of his people by his spirit and is destined to return as the conquering king to establish the fullness of God's kingdom. And because of this, let's commit to delighting now in making his kingship known in every facet of our lives. And as a point of application, I'd like to call us back to something we've been talking a lot about this fall, and that's to consider carefully Our calling to faithful obedience to God's great commission for his church. That is, consider our participation in actively making known the kingdom of God in his glory. And we've received good, fruitful instruction that I would uh, encourage you to reflect on again. But I'd also like to encourage you with this, that God knows our struggle with this. And this summer, in my reading, I was uh, reading a number of books about the mission of God and and the mission he's given the church. And one of the authors presented a very simple prayer that I've adopted as my own. I pray it for myself, and I pray it for my family, and I pray it for my church. And I like it because it's simple, and it's authentic because it reveals my weakness, particularly in this area. And the prayer sounds like this. Father, give me opportunities to bear witness to the gospel through my words today. Give me the wisdom to recognize those opportunities and give me the courage to take them. Opportunities, wisdom, and courage. And it's my hope that God would answer that prayer not only in my life, but in the life of my church. That we would bear witness faithfully to the fact that we have a king, King Jesus. And at the same time, there's further motivation for us for engaging in the mission that God has given. Number one, there's an urgency, and we know this well, an urgency that's grounded in the fact that God's salvation hasn't expired. It's not something that's only far off in the future. But like Paul told the Corinthian church, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's mercy. And so like Paul, we strive to make the most of every opportunity so that Jesus' kingship would be known to the fullest extent in all of our lives. And secondly, Christ's kingly life and death and resurrection have brought victory now to believers a victory that will be experienced in all of its fullness when he returns in glory. But because of Jesus our King, now we have victory over sin and death. Now we have the assurance of salvation. Now we have the promise of God to help us persevere in our faith. Now we have the testimony of the body of Christ expressing his victory in the world today. And our Christian lives and evangelistic efforts are effective, not due to our own ability or effort, although it's our responsibility ability to, to be obedient, but it's effective because of the victory that God has brought His church through His Son. So believers, we undertake the Great Commission as triumphant members of God's kingdom, for Jesus, our King, has brought decisive salvation. And victory. Moving to the last part of the story in verses 12 to 15, we've come from Jabesh Gilead to Gibeah and Bezek. The story culminates at Gilgal. And although the victory of the army is the high point in the story, the real climactic moment, I think, unfolds here in verses 12 to 15 as Samuel returns to the narrative and he guides the people through a renewal ceremony. And this is a pivotal juncture, not just in the leadership of Saul, but for the spiritual life of the entire people of Israel. And remember, at the close of chapter 10, some people were allowed to openly question Saul's ability to lead. And now following Saul's victory, the the tune has changed a little bit. And others turn to Samuel and, and urge him to surrender those worthless fellows for execution. And surprisingly, it's Saul who responds in a gracious way. And he says, no, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Saul knew that this wasn't a time to settle a personal vendetta. He couldn't lay any claim to the victory that had just been won. And so seizing the opportunity, Samuel led the people back to God, calling them to gather at a place called Gilgal. Gilgal, if you'll remember, is the place where Joshua renewed the covenant with the people years earlier. And there they set up memorial stones uh, after crossing the Jordan River. And this place was a perpetual reminder of how God had redeemed his people from Egypt, brought them into the Canaan land safely. And so Samuel strategically chooses this location to call the people back to God and renew the kingdom. Well, what kingdom? Well, yes, uh, Saul's uh, rulership as, as God's given king needed to be affirmed. But ultimately, it was the authority and sovereignty of God over his people that needed to be recognized. And God was uh, calling the people to submit and surrender to him. And this renewal ceremony brings to light, I think, an underlying idea that presents itself throughout the whole book of 1 Samuel. And that idea is that Israel could only have a human king when their rule was in submission to the authority and sovereignty of God's kingship. And so the people gather at Gilgal and make Saul king before the Lord and offer peace offerings and rejoice greatly. And it's through this renewal ceremony that the people's priorities are set right again. Saul's kingdom was set in proper perspective and relationship to God's kingdom in this time of spiritual renewal. But looking through Israel's history, we know the people struggled with maintaining these priorities. And they often failed to submit to God and live faithfully in covenant relationship with him. But God, being gracious, sent his prophets to his people at different times and places to call the people back. But his prophets were rejected. And so God sent his son as the Messiah, But as foretold by the prophet Isaiah, he was a man who was despised and rejected. And we can remember the rejection of Jesus that he experienced with the people that he sought to minister to. They didn't understand how this man could be the Messiah. This was Jesus from Nazareth. We know his family. How can this be the Messiah? Jesus faced opposition from religious leaders who challenged his teaching. Question his, his authority, consistently worked to undermine him. Many of his followers turned their back on him. His closest disciples rejected him too. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And the ultimate rejection was seen in Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. And we might consider how this rejection continues throughout the ages to today. And people continue to reject Jesus for various reasons. Some take offense at his claim to be God. Some take offense at his claim to be the only means of salvation. And some simply ignore him or pay no attention in favor of selfish worldly pursuits. But the Bible is very clear that rejecting Jesus, for whatever reason, carries with it eternal consequences. Jesus truly is either the cornerstone on which we build our lives, or he's the stone of stumbling that people will fall over to their demise. And so applying 1 Samuel chapter 11, again, requires us to carefully consider and respond appropriately, both those who are unbelievers and believers, to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And know that just like the people of Jabesh Gilead who were facing the Ammonite threat, we are besieged by our sin and in a helpless state. And we stand before God, who is perfectly holy, as guilty in our sin and rightfully deserving of his wrath, with no hope on our own for salvation. And our only hope for rescue is for God's perfect and final King Jesus to to save us. And he did just that. Jesus, by virtue of his perfectly righteous life, his substitutionary death and suffering on the cross, and his glorious resurrection, secures the ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. And this victory can be known and counted as our own when by faith, We join ourselves to Christ and we confess our allegiance to him and we trust in the power and the effectiveness of his redemptive work to cover us in our guilt before God. And more than that, it's our victorious King Jesus who leads us in a glorious procession to God the Father where our rebellion is met by God's mercy and his grace. And when we come in repentance and humility, seeking forgiveness, the Bible says God removes the wrath of sin from us. And as far as the East is from the the West, he separates us from it and in its place, He clothes us in Christ's righteousness, and he calls us his children. He restores our relationship with him. Guilt, fear, condemnation is removed, and in its place, we receive the blessing of God through new spiritual life, ongoing transformation, freedom from sin's power, and the assurance of eternal life with, with God. And just as Samuel called the people to renew their covenant with him, The gospel requires a response from us, and that response is one of faith, of simply casting ourselves on Jesus alone as our only means of salvation. So, if you're an unbeliever, consider that through Jesus, God has worked a great salvation in which you are invited to live. Call out to Jesus, leave behind your rebellion, turn from your sin. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus alone as the only means of being counted right with God. Trade your rebellion and sin for Christ's righteousness so that you might be reconciled with God and know the joy, peace, and assurance that comes from living as a member of his kingdom. Believers, there's a response for us too as we rehearse this victory message of the gospel And that is, as spirit-filled people of God battling sin, crying out to him for more of his presence in our life, asking to faithfully bear witness to the gospel of Christ, let's be prompted to daily return to our own Gilgal and reaffirm our submission daily to Jesus' lordship. And let's endeavor to acknowledge his rightful authority in every aspect of our lives recognizing that that's the place of true freedom and victory. And it comes by yielding every action, every thought, every word, every deed to him and him alone. And then in that place, let's marvel at the beauty of our king. and Let's fall at his feet in glorious worship, lifting him high, praying that God would enlarge his kingdom, starting with every corner and crevice of our hearts. We have a king. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before your throne with hearts overflowing with praise and adoration for Jesus, our perfect King. Father, we know that it's through faith in, in Jesus alone we've been lifted from the siege of sin. And you've brought us into a renewed relationship with you. And you've closed us with his righteousness. And Father, I ask that you would give us the ability by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to surrender to your Lordship every day to acknowledge your supreme rule over every part of our lives. Father, give us the resolve and the strength required to walk obediently and faithfully in keeping with your commands. Holy Spirit, empower us to mortify sin in our lives and fill us afresh each day with your power and presence that we would glorify Christ. Father, I ask that you would make our witness of the gospel effective. Father, give us opportunities, give us wisdom and courage to take those and be glorified as we exalt Christ the King. and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.